just read a few verses from God's Word. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in verse 26 of Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. These are amazing words that the Apostle Paul is sharing with the believers in Galatia, helping them understand their identity in Christ. And as we look at chapter, let me make sure I have this, 28 of our London Baptist Confession, it all has to do with, well, it's really an introduction to baptism and the Lord's Supper. So two very brief paragraphs, but it's going to be a a good launching point into the upcoming weeks as we look at both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I wanted to start in Galatians chapter 3. And if you look at your handout, you've got a blank there. We are in need of being reminded of our union with Christ. As Christians, we are in great need of continually being reminded of our union with Christ, which is our identity. It is who we are because of what Christ has accomplished for sinners like us. And when we think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are blessings, gifts from the Lord, ordinances to help us remember who we are. So I want to I begin with prayer and then I, I'm going to read a little passage from uh, one of Stephen Yule's upcoming books to help us kind of prepare our hearts and mind. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your redemptive work through your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that as we gather as your people this morning, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ would be built up in our faith, would be encouraged and reminded and glory in the grace and the mercy that you have poured out upon us through the work of your son. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to hear your word proclaimed, to lift up prayers and songs to you, to fellowship with one another, to to partake of the Lord's Supper. God, all of these are your glorious means of grace, which we will be reminded of this morning. And Lord, I pray, God, that you you would encourage the saints, remind us of who we are. And Father, may we respond in worship. Respond in, in praise and giving glory to the King of Kings who, have, who has ransomed a people for himself. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I mentioned Stephen Yule. He was the previous pastor of our sending church in Glenrose. And he has a, an upcoming book, um, Commentary on Galatians, coming out soon. And 
I got a little sneak peek, and uh, the way that he begins one chapter I think is really helpful, so I wanted to read it for us this morning. It's brief, don't worry. He starts with a question. How do we see ourselves? There are only two options on the table. According to the first, our chief identity is determined by something about us. Perhaps our nationality or ethnicity. Perhaps our school or career. Perhaps our role as a husband, a wife, father, or mother. Perhaps a team, hobby, sport, cause, or skill. Perhaps a relationship or experience. When our chief identity is determined by something about us, it inevitably leads to problems. If it's determined by our role as a husband or wife, what happens when this role changes or ends? If it's determined by our nationality or, or ethnicity, what happens when we meet people who are different from us? If it's determined by our skills and abilities, what happens when others don't appreciate us? If it's determined by our causes and opinions, what happens when others disagree with us? If it's determined by our accomplishments, what happens when we fail? If it's determined by our appearance, what happens when we meet someone who's better looking than us? If it's determined by our job or school, what happens when we interact with those less skilled or less educated than us? If it's determined by our standards, what happens when others don't measure up? If it's determined by our children, what happens when they let us down or embarrass us? If it's determined by our intelligence, what happens when others don't listen to us? Are you beginning to see how important this is? If we derive our chief identity from something about us, sooner or later, we'll encounter disappointment, frustration, resentment, or discouragement. The second option is to define ourselves according to who we are in Christ. In other words, it's to define ourselves vertically. When we do, it shapes everything. It humbles us and causes us to think of others more highly than ourselves. It strengthens us to endure and embrace suffering. It empowers us to serve selflessly and faithfully. It engenders gentleness, meekness, patience, compassion, and kindness. It enables us to, to extend forgiveness when others have wronged us. Embracing our identity in Christ is foundation to everything. Come on in, guys. And as we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, these ordinances given to us by Christ, we as Christians who need to be reminded, when we see a brother or sister in Christ baptized, or when we weekly partake of the Lord's Supper, these are means of God's grace that encourages us, that reminds us, that reorients us to the truth of where our, our identity lies. And so these are great blessings from the Lord. And I hope that as we begin looking at these two chapters, these brief, I'm sorry, paragraphs, uh, we will find we'll find encouragement. You also have a few more blanks there as we think about being reminded of our union with Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us, as we just heard in Galatians chapter 3, that to be a believer is to be baptized into Christ. This is our identity, 
and we need to be reminded of it. Christ takes hold of us by the Holy Spirit, the first blank, and we take hold of him by faith. These two bind us together, whereby we become one, become one with Christ. We're baptized or plunged with the Spirit into Christ's body. He is the head, we are the body. This is our identity. Now, as we look at this first paragraph, I'd like to invite a volunteer. I I hope that you see that it's printed there for you very clearly to read that first paragraph for us, short and sweet. Any volunteers? Thank you, Edgar. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. All right. Very good. And at some point, we're going to look at Matthew 28 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So be prepared and excited to to read those passages, if you will, when we get to that point. Um, I wanted, though, to also remind us, first beginning with our identity or our union with Christ, also the the important role that faith plays in, in properly understanding the sacraments or ordinances that we see in this chapter, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So you see number two there, faith's role distinguishes, distinguishes the visible church from the world. So if you've been with us the last several Sundays, we started several Sundays back looking at or introducing the church and just by way of reminder, we did one, one session, which was the first four paragraphs of that chapter, and we're going to come back to that at the end of our study through the confession, because there was a lot more in that chapter on the church. And then last week, uh, Pastor Andrew introduced us to the communion of the saints. I want us to keep in mind what we're thinking about, what we're looking at, even within baptism in the Lord's Supper, is is all under the umbrella of the church, the bride of Christ, and what God has ordained Christian believers to participate in, to be a part of. And so when we think about faith's role distinguishing the visible church from the world, I want to just kind of briefly explain where I'm coming from. By the 16th century, the centrality of the word, the word, the Bible, had been replaced by the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Specifically, the sacrament of the Eucharist. So when we talk about the Lord's Supper, they would refer to it as the Eucharist. And what, what was happening and what really led to a big part of the Reformation and even into this confession being written is to make sure we understand what we believe and how it's rooted from Scripture. And so the return to sola scriptura led the reformers to correctly turn to preaching the word as central to the life of the church. So many Roman Catholics would come in and not even understand the language in which the word was being communicated, but experience the mass and the Eucharist and believe that that is really the the end all. It's what they needed. It was sufficient for their life, and the reformers realized, oh, we're, we're missing it if if God's word 
is not the thing that is leading us and informing us. And so they wanted to get back to sola scriptura, God's word and his word alone, that is the driving force that, that dictates and instructs every form or area of our life. So this return to sola scriptura was a, was a humongous shift in, in properly even understanding baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we read in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so preaching of the word became absolutely central rather than the mass. It was a replacement of sacramental ritualism with gospel preaching. So this rediscovery of biblical truth of justification by faith alone, which is not known unless you're going to God's word and seeing that truth exposited and expounded upon and shown that it actually is rooted that salvation comes solely our right standing before God comes solely by justification through faith in Christ alone when those truths are uncovered it starts to reorient or really transform what the Christian life is really about so justification by faith alone laid the biblical foundation for the true biblical church Those who were truly children of God were those who were justified by faith. Not not justified by acts that they did or works, but clearly it was solely on the grounds of Christ's person and work. So this began to lay the foundation of uh, informing what the, the, the real visible church looks like and who's a part of it. So, um... The church was no longer defined by individuals who were baptized and who witnessed the Mass, but by individuals who personally believed the promises set forth in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and therefore participated in those ordinances biblically. Faith, then, is the essence that separated the church from the world. So you've got another blank there uh, by the letter A. This faith was given visible form in the ordinances and then b faith shows itself initially in the believer's submission to baptism you've got a blank there so faith shows itself initially in the believer's submission to baptism obedience and baptism and then repeatedly in his or her participation in the lord's supper protestant churches are marked by adherents who express personal faith in christ apart from which baptism and the Lord's Supper would be useless. So what I'm driving at here, and what I think is really important, is getting, getting the order correct. So if you're thinking about the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper as a spiritual ritualism, you then think, if I do it, then I will be right. I will be good before God. As long as I'm participating, the end result is I'm good. When scripture says we're justified by faith alone, so God has done a work in us by sovereign grace, and the result of it is we then get to participate in his spiritual nourishment of us as his people, which comes through the means of grace, and two of them are the Lord's Supper and baptism. Does that make sense? So if you're striving to participate to get your right standing, you've got it all wrong, And so when faith is at the center, that our union with Christ is by his great work, well then that changes the way we then walk out what he's called us to do. 
You're, you're starting to properly understand baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we praise God for the Reformation, for the rediscovery of the solas that uh, really, it really changed the tra trajectory of um, a proper understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, number three there, what's in a name? Sacrament or ordinance? Have you heard both used when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Uh, probably here, it, if you're not uh, familiar with these words, we, the elders here, probably do use them interchangeably. And so I think it's good for us to just spend a moment to look at uh, what's the, the name that's referred to for baptism in the Lord's Supper and, and does it matter? Um, and I would submit to you, if you are defining it a certain way, it most definitely matters. Um, and so I think it, it is good for us to just spend a moment to think through uh, the name, what they're referred to as. So we've noted, um, as we've worked through this confession, the similarities and then some of the differences between the 1689 Baptist London Confession and the Westminster Confession. And we realize that many things are similar, and we want to clarify and, and understand some of the distinctives, some of the differences. In the Westminster Confession, uh, the word sacrament is used uh, as the header of the chapter, speaking about the Lord's Supper and baptism, so both in title and then used several times as it's explaining baptism in the Lord's Supper. Now, in the London Baptist Confession, you don't see the word sacrament used, and instead of, you would see more of a reference to the ordinances given to us by God. Now, why am I kind of spending a little bit of time here? Uh, first, defining the terms, and then hopefully this will be helpful. The term sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which simply means something sacred. So if you're kind of moving along and you see sacred given as the term to define the Lord's Supper and baptism, we would say, okay, we, we can track with that. Something sacred that, that God has ordained for, for his people. It was used to translate the word mystery in the Latin Vulgate, which was the translation used by the Roman Catholic Church. So the great question raised by the absence of this word in, in the 1689 um, really does at least shed light on some of the concerns on the appropriate use of the word sacrament. The answer of whether or not we should use sacrament or ordinance really does depend on what we mean by it. So if the term for us is associated with a superstitious sacramentalism, which attributes, and you've got to understand this, the sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, they would view as actually contributing saving efficacy. So the act itself is actually contributing to your salvation. So if you do not participate in the sacrament, you are not saved. If you do, it is, it is imputing to you saving efficacy. That's an important mark if you're using sacrament in that sense. So we would say that's not what we mean by the word sacrament. So in a sense, you do, you do need to be careful. If sacrament to us is just a word used as reverence and conveying the way of speaking about baptism in the Lord's Supper, um, 
the ordinances of Christ, which make up the physical emblems, then um, I don't think that, that it's out of bounds or um, shouldn't, shouldn't be touched, but I do think that there probably uh, needs to be a nuance or clarification when, when we're saying sacrament, uh, speaking of the ordinances. So um, the term ordinance is defined as a rule established by authority, a permanent rule of action. That's from the, West, uh, the Webster 1828 Dictionary. An ordinance may be a law or statue of sovereign power. And so when the 1689 uses ordinance as the word, I actually think in this case it's, it's, a, clarif- it's a clarification from what they were head-on uh, experiencing and running up against when it comes to the Roman Catholic understanding of the sacraments. So you can take that for what it's worth. I think it's good to just kind of think through why we would say sacrament or why we would say ordinance and just be thoughtful about it and maybe be ready if you're going to say the sacraments uh, to make sure, or when you're even talking about means of of grace, we're not talking about uh, saving efficacy being given to someone when you participate in it. Does that make sense? Uh, So we want to make sure we're, again, rooting our salvation solely in Christ and Christ alone and not veering into kind of a uh, superstitious, if you participate in this, you're going you're gonna to experience some kind of mystical channels of divine grace. That's, that's not what we mean. So um, that, that's number three. Any questions there? Or maybe clarifications? Have you all run up against? Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to ask, would you say that there's a, also some kind of a extreme if we use the, the word ordinance? That for example, you go to what, like like a mega church, and where the where baptism is just viewed as something that's just what we do. That's that's what the Lord said. We just do it like that. Hmm. So, because I particularly I'm not a fan of either word. I just <laughs> interchange with it. Sure. With, with one, I mean, uh, if I'm dealing with a with a sacramental, that's like a Roman Catholic, yeah, I use ordinance because they it put too much emphasis on the yeah. ritual. If I'm talking with like a more like a nominal Christian, we just I just got baptized and, and that's it. I use the word sacrament to emphasize yeah. that it is something sacred. But you say like yeah. No, I think that's helpful. Yeah, audience context matters. Um, what I like about the actual definition of ordinance is it really line, aligns with this brief first paragraph in helping us understand that this wasn't man-made, but this was actually given to us by the lawgiver. And so, in that sense, I think you know. If you, spend t- if you actually want to unpack the, the definition and define terms, I think for both parties it could be helpful uh, that we don't just do this lackadaisically or there's like remove of, of somehow, uh, I don't know, some traditionalism. But this is actually Christ, the lawgiver, who, is, who has called us to participate in this, commanded us to. So I think it's good to, to think about who you're talking to, uh, audience, and uh, where you find yourself could be be good and helpful. Okay, number four, how many are there? How many ordinances or sacraments are there? And according to this paragraph and what we would affirm here at Grace Covenant Church, two, just two. So uh, you may go, well, of course, well, there are seven sacraments according to the Roman Catholic Church, and we believe there are two, and many others believe that there are three including washing feet. Some may have heard of that as 
as a sacrament, the third sacrament or ordinance that Christ gave the church. And we would, uh, we would not believe that to be um, true. Uh, you can see this by the late patristic period. This would be 5th century. It was a, a ritual in place in areas like North Africa. Uh, even in modern Roman communion, it is a ritual associated with Monday, Thursday, and that's the day right before Good Friday. Uh, the Moravian or Moravian brethren participates in washing of feet. The Anabaptist Mennonites do this as well, and some Seventh Day Adventists. So there are many who actually do view this as an additional ordinance that was given to the church. And a good question to ask, why isn't foot washing? So if you're reading through like the Gospel of John, for example, and you get to chapter 13, it is a momentous occasion where Christ, the King of Kings, the Sovereign Lord of Lords, takes off a towel, wraps it around, bows down, kneels down, and begins washing his disciples' feet, and he gives it to them as an example. You could understand, okay, people kind of clinging to that and saying, well, if he calls us to do this, then this must be, in addition to baptism in the Lord's Supper, something that we are to ongoingly do as an ordinance, an established rule by the authority. And I would just submit to you that not every symbolic act by our Lord is a sacrament. So if you look through his life and ministry, there were many examples given by him that we don't latch onto and then kind of you know, crystallize that into a, an ongoing uh, rule established by him that, that's permanent and perpetual that we should continue to observe as one of his ordinances. As you're looking through the life and ministry of Christ, you could probably identify several different symbolic acts that the Lord Jesus does that we would look at, learn from, but not then make into uh, an ordinance. Uh, and then I would also submit to you what's probably more helpful in understanding why foot washing is not in the same realm as baptism in the Lord's Supper would be the centrality of the gospel, the close association with Christ's death and resurrection. So the Heidelberg Catechism, question 66, asks, what are the sacraments? And I just want you to read, oh, I'm sorry, I want you to listen to the answer because I think it helps distinguish what I'm saying here between like what foot washing would be and what baptism in the Lord's Supper is. So the sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof, he may uh, the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. So when you look at baptism in the Lord's Supper, I would submit to you biblically that what, what distinguishes these um, ordinances is that they're so closely tied to the centrality of the gospel and so closely associated to his death and resurrection. Number five, where did they come from? And this is... Um, very clear from the paragraph, a custom or practice established by an authority, and we see the exclusive author of the ordinances being the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the authority, you're blank there, who instituted both baptism and 
the Lord's Supper. Um, now, I would like us to, to look at those two passages that were referenced in the paragraph at the end, Matthew chapter 28, and also looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So, if I could get a reader to read, I want to read 18 through 20 in Matthew 28, and then in 1 Corinthians uh, 24 through 26. So a little bit before, a little bit after. Ronnie's got one and Jason's got one. I'll you want to take the first one? I'll take Matthew. Okay. Oh, he's got the first one. You got the second one? Um, Maybe. Jason, hold on one second. Let Ronnie get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay. All right, Jason. All right. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I hope that you can hear both in the realm of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It is all anchored to Christ. Christ being given the authority from the Father to make these uh, claims and commissions and, and rules. Um, and then when you hear from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that this is something that helps believers and we're called to do in remembrance of him until the very end. And so kind of taking those both um, as, as great kind of foundational text when thinking about baptism in the Lord's Supper, uh, I think it helps us then look at number six. The confession says that both ordinances are of positive and sovereign institution. So really where we're going right now is just to reiterate the reality that it is Christ the one who has the authority to make these rules, these ordinances, um, and just kind of how the confession goes about describing. So the first is by positive law or ordinance. It is something in addition to natural law, meaning um, it's not demanded by nature, but, but something uh, spoken or given uh, by only one who has authority to do it. So these ordinances did not exist in the Old Testament, but came into existence in the New Covenant. And if they had been part of the law of nature, they would have always existed. But there was actually a moment in time where the Lord Jesus Christ proclaims these laws and, and institutes both baptism and the Lord's Supper to be participated in or by his, his people. And so be in a peculiar fashion, the only lawgiver, Jesus Christ, is the one who appointed them. And it was by uh, his sovereign free will, Christ the King uh, is able to put on display the institution of these ordinances. He is the exclusive author of them. And then C, because Christ appointed them, these ordinances are to be continued in the church after the apostles even had died off and are to be continued till Christ's second coming. So in a sense, you could think of this is a positive law given by Christ from his first advent to his second advent. 
the first coming and incarnation to this, the second uh, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, these, both baptism and Lord's Supper, are commanded to be obeyed and participated in by uh, the people of God. Uh, and just as we're moving, we may be moving quickly and you're going, wait, you're kind of missing some things. The, the next uh, session will just do, be a deep dive into both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so this is, in a sense, in some ways, kind of a flyover. Uh, so just kind of keep bear, bearing with me. D, since it's Christ that gave us this positive and sovereign institution, a love for and loyalty to the will of Christ the King will lead to careful observation of and obedience to his positive and sovereign institution. When done in obedience because he told us to do so, then there is a fresh sense of the living life, the reality and the presence of Christ in the ordinances. So Sam Waldron penned these words. I think they're helpful. Baptism and the Lord's Supper point back to the living authority of Christ and also point forward to the actual return and presence of Christ. They are lifelines which remind us of the living Christ and his power in our lives. And so lastly, we practice the ordinances because they are, you're blank there, means of grace. So I've said that phrase a few times now, and I want to make sure we understand what I mean by it. They are means of grace. So in chapter 14 of the London Baptist Confession... And in our book that hopefully most of you have, if you don't, we've got some extra copies, there's a Baptist catechism. Uh, there's a question asked about really this topic of, of means of grace. What are they? In the 14th chapter, this is what we hear. Um, this, I believe, is, is the first paragraph. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe, the saving, uh, believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God. It is increased and strengthened. Those, those two words are really important. God uses His means of grace to increase our our spiritual life, and strengthen us, nourish us spiritually. So I think I have this definition by Richard Barcelos on your handout. He defines means of grace as the delivery systems God has instituted to bring grace. That is spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, spiritual fortitude, and spiritual blessings to needy souls on the earth. What he's not saying is it somehow infuses saving grace. Again, we don't want to lean towards or move towards the act that of themselves participating in baptism or the Lord's Supper somehow is that kind of uh, sacramentalism uh, where we are experiencing saving grace by doing the act. Rather, his definition is, is very um, clear in the ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of the believer who has been saved by grace. So you have been saved by grace, you are now one with Christ, and the means of grace, the preaching of God's Word, the ordinances, prayer, all of these are means of grace in which God 
builds up his people. Amen. We need, that, that's why we, we really, uh, when we looked at even the communion of the saints, I believe we went to Hebrews chapter 10, when we read passages about not, not neglecting to, to come together and meet and worship with the saints, the ongoing ministry of the word, sitting under it, and, and, and experiencing both baptism and ongoingly the Lord's Supper, this isn't some kind of man-made thing that we think is just good for us. God has ordained it in such a way that this is how he ministers by the Spirit to his people. That's why if we ever are meeting with you and concerned, if we have not seen you gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day, it's not because we just want to be puffed up because we have a lot of people who regularly want to meet together and hear the words come out of our mouth, by no means. It is because God has ordained this for our lifeline to be encouraged and built up. And so when we talk about the means of grace and looking at the ordinances, what a beautiful gift that God has given his people. We're not saying you are baptized over and over again. That is a one-time act where we publicly profess what Christ has done in us. And we are uh, in union with Christ, and that is that entrance into the church. And then the ongoing participation and communion is that Lord's Supper. And those are given by God, and it is for our increase and strengthening. So spiritual nourishment, if you did not hear me yet, is not saving efficacy. I just want to make sure that's very clear. But it is so vital to our Christian life, the means of grace. Would someone read paragraph two for us, please? It's short. Thank you, Justin. These holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Thank you so much. Okay, paragraph two. I really wanted to have time to really unpack this. The answer, the elders, the office of overseer, we believe from Scripture, have been entrusted with the stewardship and care for the church. So here at Grace Covenant Church, you will see elders be the ones who officiate the Lord's table, fencing it understanding that there are, we're, we're inviting those who have been saved by grace, who are one with Christ and are not under church discipline. Those are the ones who are welcomed, and we are caring and protecting the flock and overseeing what God has entrusted to us. And likewise, in baptism, it's not just that we're the ones that, that perform the act of dunking someone in the water. There's so much more pastorally that goes into making sure that this candidate actually has a credible profession of faith. And we believe that that whole process has been entrusted to the overseers of the church. And again, I, want, I wanted to build a big case, and hopefully maybe in the upcoming session that can be made a little bit more thorough. But that is the, the answer. And to come to completion, uh, even if you feel like it was not as adequate, paragraph two of an explanation due to time, I want to just bring us back to where we started. The ordinances remind us of our union with Christ. And so to hear this last paragraph from Stephen Yule, this then is our identity. We've been baptized into Christ. We might be rich or poor, sick or healthy. 
We might, have, or we might be having a, a good day or a bad day. We might be feeling great or terrible. There's no change in our relationship to God and Christ. If he loved me yesterday, he loves me today, and he'll love me tomorrow. This is the sum and substance of all the promises. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This promise is what Christ has purchased for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for both baptism and the Lord's Supper. For by them we are reminded of our great hope in our living Savior. We are reminded of who we are, that our identity is not based off of what we've done or who we're with or how smart we are, Father, but solely on a person the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done and what great encouragement and hope this brings for rebels like us who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, as we transition into corporate worship, I pray, Father, that this morning in particular, as we will have the privilege of participating in the Lord's Supper, that you would stir our hearts and our minds to truly uh, just revel in what Christ has done for his people. As we hold the bread, which represents his body broken, and hold the cup, which represents his blood shed, realizing that the eternal Son of God came to, to earth to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. And may we respond in praise and worship. And all this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.